Welcome to the NBDA podcast, interviews with industry leaders and subject experts from across the business development world. Join us as we talk about real-world experiences, challenges, and opportunities that can take your career to the next level. The NBDA podcast is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the official podcast of the National Business Development Association. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Jonathan Fisher, co-founder of Brand Extract right here in Houston. Jonathan has decades of experience in advising clients on branding ideas, solutions, and initiatives. We had a great conversation, including examples of how branding can be a foundation for increased growth, better client retention, and greater profitability. We also talked about NBDA, how he came to learn about it, and why he joined more than five years ago. It turns out that Jonathan spends about a third of his time doing business development, in addition to his other roles as chairman of the firm. And and he had some great insights and best practices around what he does to succeed in business development. This is a great episode, especially if you serve in a business development role and wish to learn the secrets and habits of someone who has successfully developed new business for decades. So with that, let's get to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my, it's my pleasure. So I've always loved the name of your firm, Brand Extract. What, what, what's it mean? Where did the name come from? What's the history of the firm? When did you start it? Give us a little bit of the backstory. Sure. I uh, started my firm in 94, and that was, if you recall, the sort of the start of the internet and the yeah. dot-com, boom, dot-com boom in the late 90s. And I had started doing quite a bit of integrated communications back then. A lot of people didn't know how to use the web, how to, you know, what it was going to be ultimately be- becoming for them in terms of their marketing and their branding and all that. But after a decade, the industries were changing. WordPress had come out, uh, social media had kicked in, and a lot of companies were realizing that they, in effect, didn't really own their brand. They had to essentially manage their brand in the marketplace because anybody could trash anybody <laughs> with a post or a blog or a tweet, whatever it might be. Sure. But, uh, yeah. And I had worked in the industry for a while and had a number of peers that I admired at competitive firms. And there was a good friend of mine and a competitor, and he left his firm that he was a partner at to go start his own firm. His name was Bo Bodie. And Bo and I got to talking, uh, and I felt like, and he felt like we were better if we teamed up than if we competed against each other. Okay. And and so we got together, and and we needed a new name. We didn't want to keep the name from either one of our previous firms that we'd established ourselves in. So we got to talking and uh, we agreed to team up and we formed Brand Extract. And that was about 15, 16 years ago, maybe 2005, uh, when we put the firm together. And so our focus uh, at the time really was to really help companies think about how are they going to position and manage in this new marketplace, in this constantly evolving marketplace uh, that we were seeing. And so the name Brand Extract sort of stems from two concepts, if you will, the idea of removing that which doesn't matter and extracting that which is valuable. And you can also think of it, the distillation or like the vanilla extract, the concentration 
of those things that do matter into the most powerful position or message that you can come up with in the marketplace. And so that's the origin of the firm through that shared vision and partnership. And today we've created over 240 brands in the marketplace, helped them create, transform and grow their brands and worked with, you know, literally hundreds of companies. That's that's awesome. I, as an entrepreneur myself, I always love hearing another entrepreneur's entrepreneurial journey. So thank you for sharing that. What I find that one of the best ways to really help understand what makes a company different is to maybe talk about a client success story that can kind of uh, demonstrate something unique. Can you think of a client that you either can mention my name or if you leave them anonymous, where you you really were able to make a big difference and kind of demonstrate an example of the value that your firm can provide? Sure. We work with companies that range from multi-billion dollar global businesses to literally $5 million, you know, independent proprietor entrepreneur businesses. Okay. Pretty, pretty broad range of opportunities to talk about. And there are a lot of metrics you can look at. For example, you can look at helping a company reduce its attrition if they're struggling or suffering. Or you can look at how a company, you can help a company increase its price points in the marketplace or defend its price points in the marketplace. You can look at how you can help a company launch new product lines or service offerings. Or you could look at how you can help a company penetrate a new market. Maybe they're a regional player trying to go into, say, a national market, and they don't, they don't have a presence in that national market or a different region of the country. Okay. So there, are, there are a lot of ways to think about how strategically positioning a brand can make an impact to an organization. One of my favorite stories is we worked with a relatively small business, a couple of entrepreneurs like yourself. <laughs> and they had built uh, a service provider business uh, in uh, working with companies on you know, technology platforms. And uh, think of them as an ISP, if you will, at the time. And they had developed pretty much a very broad set of service offerings. Uh, I like to think of it as that a la carte menu, if you will. But the problem was when you looked at where clients placed value and how clients selected them and how their operations were su supported or aligned with that relevance, there were gaps in the process. And typically what we do is we go in and do essentially a SWOT analysis of a company. We look at their internal strengths, their weaknesses, opportunities and threats, traditional SWOT type of methodology approach. And we interview employees, we interview executives, but then we go outside the organization and we interview customers and we look at what they value, what's relevant to them, what's most important to them. And you can compare okay. that internal perspective. You can compare that internal perspective with that external perspective. And then the third thing we do is we look at the competitive perspective. What are the competitors saying and doing? And so if you think of it as a Venn diagram with the three circles where your strengths against most important things that the customer values, against mm -hmm. what is truly unique in the marketplace, you can, you can understand the strategic position is dead center, right? It's that overlap of all three value propositions that are the most critical to align. So we realized that the company was really not living up to its promises. Their operations weren't supporting 
the value propositions that the customers cared most about. And they needed to make a lot of changes. They simplified their offerings. We created basically a good, better, be- good, better, best package, if you will, for them and their service offerings. They made some structural changes to support that. They saw basically a 50% growth in sales in less than two years, which attracted a buyer who paid a premium probably of 4x of what the marketplace was paying. Oh, wow. In the market for an organization like that. So the valuation was substantially higher as a result of the systems they put in place and of the playbooks that we had given them and the positioning that we helped them establish in the marketplace. And so I just think it's a personal story. It's a great story. We can talk a lot about, you know, helping multi-billion dollar companies add millions to the bottom line. Sure. But it's not as, it's not as exciting to talk about these types of stories where you can help, say, a middle market company you know, really transform from a generational handoff from maybe the third or fourth generation to the, you know, the next generation down and help that company move from being stuck in the 80s to, you know, contemporary position in the marketplace today and launching new product lines. And those are my favorite types of stories that we've done. I like to talk about. Yeah, I, I love that that story and the and talk about measurable value. I mean, you'd mentioned a Forex a multiple over what a company would typically sell for. And I'm guessing before you got involved, they were probably, you know, average or below average. So the valuation increase might have actually been more than four times, right? Yeah, they were actually hem- hemorrhaging about twice what they should be hemorrhaging in terms of customers. Oh, wow. Um, market attrition in their space is generally around 10%, and they were averaging uh, upwards of 20%. And their profit margins were not nearly as high as what they should be either. So, you know, if you're, if, think of it this way, if you can reduce the attrition, at the same time, you can increase the price point. At the same time, you can increase the quantity of leads. And at the same time, you can increase, say, the win ratio, all while reducing the sales cycle in the process. Each one of those geometric lifts compounds on the other. Right. And instead of getting and instead of getting a you know a two or three percent here lift or you know five or ten percent lift here, it's a linear process that builds and you get a much larger lift in the organization. Sure. And that's what we try to do. We try not to just drive more people in the funnel, but drive better quality people in the funnel who will pay a higher rate who want to buy faster and sooner in the process. Think of that funnel, visualize that in your mind. Right. And you can start to realize the impact of strategic positioning and building a brand. Mm-hmm. No, that I, that, that is really insightful. Well, I have a, a, a question I thought of while you were talking about that overlap between what the company thinks their clients value and what the clients actually value is there typically a disconnect i'm guessing there 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 it's probably not unusual for there to be at least some degree of disconnect but what do you kind of see there is it normally a small disconnect a huge disconnect or is my assumption wrong is there typically not a disconnect between the two generally companies have some of the alignment that they're looking for they're in business they're successful they may not be as successful as they'd like to be, but they exist, right? So they're doing some right. things 
obviously, that are good. They can even be growing. They may not just be growing at the pace they want to grow. So even in a worst case scenario, let's take customers value uh, one through seven and company values seven through one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Completely opposite seven and ones, right? Right. In the middle, in the middle, three, four, and five are generally going to be close. <laughs> right. So it's those, out, those outer elements that are really at odds with each other in that process. Now, the, But even getting a few of these outer elements off makes a huge difference. The, the other big mistake that companies make is they, do, they truly think of relevance or value as being equal. So I use the example of one through seven because it's important to think of a hierarchy in this process. It's also mm -hmm. important to realize that while somebody may value it, you have to consider the weight and the spread between, say, number one and number two. Are they 5% apart? Or are they 50% apart? Mm -hmm. So rank order by itself is not the sole indicator that you want to look at in this process. Generally, if you measure, say, 100 things that a company does or offers within its servicing and its promises and its product quality and its contracts, whatever it might be, only about less than 20% of those things truly drive a differentiated value that causes a client to want to buy again or causes a client to want to refer you or causes a client to not want to leave you in terms of loyalty. Mm -hmm. So companies often focus on too many things or the wrong things or in the wrong order. Sure. Yeah, I can. I I have experienced that uh, firsthand. I've I've seen that because Pareto's principle, right? The eighty twenty rule often comes into play. It sounds like from what you're saying that if they focus on the you know twenty percent of the things that really matter to the client, that may get them eighty percent of the way to where they're they're trying to go. Right. You know what makes somebody happy may not be the thing that causes them to pick you. <laughs> right, so right. I can I can enjoy my peanuts on my Southwest Airlines flight, but it may not cause me to pick them as an airline. Sure, <laughs> sure. Cooking my ticket. So you have to separate these ideas and these concepts. That is, I I, I love it. That's that's great. Well, let's shift gears now, since this is called the official podcast of the National Business Development Association, NBDA for short. Let's talk a bit about NBDA and your experience with NBDA. So uh, do you remember how long ago it was you became involved with NBDA and what uh, prompted you to... Gosh, <laughs> several years now. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say at least more than five. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it feels like, <laughs> right? Um, you know, one, I knew a number of members uh, in the organization because I'd been told about it, uh, was good friends with several. I, I knew the, some of the board members, uh, Christine, the founder. And, you know, I'm always, as a business development individual myself and as an entrepreneur, you can't rest on your laurels. Markets change. You have you can't know too many people. You can't mm -hmm. have too many friends in this industry. Sure. Um, you can't help too many others in their profession because they turn around and reciprocate in your profession. So you know that's one of the beautiful things about an organization like MBDA 
is that, you know, it's a great way to meet like-minded individuals that are in the business development profession. They're trying to improve their skills. They're trying to help others and have a respect for what it takes to do this. Mm -hmm. And so you have an organization that's essentially established on pretty much that, you know, they don't try to do a zillion other things. Um, They're not unique to one vertical. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they bring education, you know, through speakers and through workshops and panels. They bring benefits through coaching processes and podcasts like this and other, other channels that they, they, they've introduced. So, you know, if you're, if you were a professional, maybe you've been in the industry a long time, or maybe you're just getting started. Um, there's going to be something you're going to learn no matter mm-hmm. what. I, I mm-hmm. don't care how much you know. Even those of us that have been doing for, for, for decades can always get better and can always remember something we even forgot. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's that. That's great. Yeah, that's been my experience as a as a member uh, as well. I'd echo some of the very same things: the education, the speakers, the ability to be around like-minded business development professionals across many different industries. So, let's talk a bit about more. Uh, granularly about business development and kind of your approach to business development. So I've got two, uh, I've got a two part question to start with in the, so it's how much time do you typically dedicate to business development and how much time should you dedicate to business development? This is kind of a question like the client customer uh, fit. Are those uh, in pretty close alignment or is there a, there's a bit of a gap? So why don't we start with about how many hours do you typically spend a week in business development? Personally, <clears throat> I probably spend, I'd say, a third to sometimes half my week. Okay. And does in business development. So it, it'll ebb and flow. It might be 20% one week and, and, you know, as high as, you know, 50% another week. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to remember that as, as a partner in my firm, my sole responsibility is not just sales. <laughs> right. Right. I have a lot of, I have a lot of other duties, you know, and we've got nearly 40 employees. So uh, there are many things that, pull my attention away. And on top of that, I, we also, as a branding marketing firm, we also have our own branding and marketing business development activities. You know, sure. I personally, you know, so we, you know, we, we promote on LinkedIn and, and you know, we work on SEO and, and we work on event sponsorships and speaking engagements. And so the, the organization itself has a number of channels and I don't, do every single one of them are responsible for every single one of them personally. So right. uh, we have a lot of shared activities in that role, but yeah, if, if I, you know, if you count up the amount of times that I'm developing business within existing accounts or attempting to develop business cold or attempting to develop business through referral, cha- referral channels or attempting to close business that's in a pipeline solution, because, you know, you have to nurture those leads and deals that, are, that you're working. Sure, sure. Um, you know, that, that those hours and then, and then just vetting uh, deals that come in. One of my key responsibilities is vetting a lot of leads. We, through our, our own marketing efforts, get, you know, anywhere from three to sometimes six leads a week. And that takes a lot of qualification time in vetting those opportunities because we don't want to spend a whole lot of time mm-hmm. if we're not the perfect fit for that opportunity. We're going to refer them to somebody else. 
Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, obviously ensuring there's the right, right fit is best to be figured out early in the process, right? So you'd mentioned about a third to a half. Is that about what you, your goal would be for about how much time you'd like to spend? Is it, is it pretty uh, consistent with, with your goals and, and what it ends up being? I enjoy meeting people. It's been a lot harder during COVID. <laughs> sure. With events, with events, you know, and trade shows canceled and whatnot. I personally enjoy that form of business development more so than just, you know, trying to do it over the phone. But when COVID started, you know, I had, we had to shift our, a lot of our marketing strategies as a result. And I started reaching out to people simply on LinkedIn across the country hmm. and started doing Zoom calls just out of the blue. And the shocking thing was that many individuals were feeling isolated and kind of welcomed talking to a stranger. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't say it was overwhelming percentage-wise, but because I was working a pretty big marketplace, it only took you know two or three out of, say, 20 or 30. And if you're contacting several hundred a week, mm-hmm. and you can use automated technology processes for that, it, it doesn't take long to set up two or three appointments every week all of a sudden. And if those can be an hour or, you know, 45 minute conversations, getting to know individuals around the country was just fascinating over the last year and a half that would ordinarily not even be on my radar. And also learning what they were doing so I could take their ideas and collectively pull them together and start to share them with others. And so it became this kind of compounding set of activities for me down the road. That is really that is really interesting. Do you do you anticipate that channel being uh, durable over time? Do you think even with a quote return to normalcy that you'll still continue to do that to some extent? Yeah, I think to some extent we'll continue to do it for sure. The great thing about this market is it's a very big market, mm-hmm. and. So it's easy to, to do work in our own backyard, but it's almost sometimes more rewarding to do work in other markets. I think you're, you're seen often as a prophet from another land. Right, right. <laughs> more, more, more so than the Joe neighbor next door <laughs> in your own market. It's kind of, we often get much higher premiums in other markets than we do in this market for the same set of service offerings. That is so, that is so interesting. And I have seen that phenomenon myself over and over where I'll have a meeting. A lot of our clients are in the Northeast of the U.S. and I'll have like a a trip up there. I'll go up for a week and I'll, you know, anchor it with a couple of current clients and then I'll have some prospect meetings. And it's amazing how people will rearrange their schedule to meet with me who are from out of town, but somebody in Houston who's a mile away, you know, it takes, you know, months to get on their calendar. But because I'm coming from out of town and I'm only there a week, they like rearrange their schedule to meet with me. It's always, uh, and it never, it's just always interesting how that phenomenon is, is consistent over time. 
Well, think about it this way. They probably know most of the people or have heard of the top organizations or individuals within their own markets. And so there's this sort of familiarity breeds contempt philosophy. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my view of how I, why I think this is so much more effective than other markets sometimes. Is they're fascinated. They want to know something they haven't seen or heard. The curiosity kills the cat, right? In that mm-hmm. process. And so I think we have curiosity on our side as a strategy when working these markets that are unfamiliar. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember early in my career, I was working for a high-end retained search firm and they had offices in San Francisco and Houston. And uh, early in my career, one of my jobs was to to help fill up the calendar of, of a couple of the partners with prospect meetings. And I figured out early on that if I was trying to book meetings in San Francisco, I would not tell them that the firm had a San Francisco office. I would let them know that, yeah, the, 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 the partner will be traveling from Houston that week and will be, you know, in San Francisco. And then when I was trying to book Houston meetings, I would, I would accentuate the San Francisco office. So, you know, to, to take advantage of that phenomenon. And yeah, I like your insight that I hadn't really thought about so much that they sort of know the local players or they feel like they do. And they feel like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's all old news. You know, I've met all them. I've heard all their stale old ideas. But here's this person I've never met from a different market. And, uh, you know, who knows? They may have some new idea. And so my curiosity and desire to not miss out will motivate me to to want to meet with them. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. I, that's my feeling, you know, regarding mm-hmm. this process. I think the other interesting thing is when you're coming from big markets like San Francisco or New York or Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, you have to remember that the vast majority of the country is not nearly as big. Mm-hmm. And I also believe there's this um, perception that sometimes bigger is better. So if you're coming from a bigger market, you might know things that their smaller regional markets are not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that we have a little niche in Corpus Christi, Texas, in our business. And I love that market because Houston is close enough to feel like, you know, we're, we're sort of a local provider, right? We're a Texas-based company, but we're from the big city and we're far enough away that the I think the sense I get is, yeah, you know, Dave, what your firm does is really innovative and, and super niche. And I, I know the six CPA firms in Corpus and, and I know they don't do anything like this. So I've also found that, that when you're based in a Houston focusing on some smaller markets can uh, can be beneficial. I'm glad you brought that up. So so you talked about the LinkedIn and Zoom calls as new kind of strategies or channels that uh, developed uh, over the last year and a half. What else do you do to, you know, what are some other business development best practices that you try to follow? So, It's easy to use automated programs, 
such as Cleverly on LinkedIn to really pound the street from a quantity standpoint. But at the same time, I also enjoy personally targeting a company on an individual basis, truly one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I'll research the web, research the, the individuals on LinkedIn, research their companies, and we'll send a very short email to them stating why I'm reaching out. For example, we have an ESG practice. I saw that. It's a relatively new practice, it looks like. It is. We've been doing sustainability reports, climate change, you know, ESG reporting, which environmental, social, and governance reporting now for nearly a decade, helping companies through that positioning, telling their stories, developing their reports, both on and offline. And it's skyrocketed. So many companies now are having to pay attention to these, these strategies because ESG strategy is business strategy. And vice versa. Sure, um, it creates it creates huge opportunities for companies. And initially, everybody thought, well, it's just going to be for the the big boys of the world, the publicly traded companies. But no, that now it's trickling down into all the privately held companies, and the private equity firms are concerned about it. The investment bankers are concerned about it. Your bank is concerned about it uh, because it, it demonstrates your risk as a business, your sustainability as a business. And it can cost you premiums in your insurance. It can it may it may be cause for denying you a loan, increasing your rates on your line of credit, whatever it might be. And so you have you know very large corporate corporations now mandating this data because if you're in their supply chain, it affects their data, mm-hmm. and it can also give you a competitive advantage to get into their supply chain or for them to take somebody out of their supply chain who does not have the data that you have or is not as good as your data in this process. Mm, and so mm-hmm. this is a this is a tsunami that is happening right now in the marketplace very, very quickly. That's, and, uh, that's interesting. So I was jumped on that topic. I'll back, go back to the question, which is what are you doing? And I will use an example of if I see that there is a sustainability tab on their website, well, I've noticed that their competitors are doing it and they are not doing it. I'll send a very short email saying, you know, was looking at your website, noticed you had a sustainability tab. Would love to talk to you about, you know, what you're doing in this space. How are you using it to differentiate your organization? Uh, or I noticed that you're, you know, you're using a PDF report product. You know, did you know that, you know, that that only garners 10% of the traffic compared to a full, you know, digital report online and make it very personal. And then I literally close out the bottom of the email saying, I actually took time to write this. This is not an auto auto generated, you know, oh, right. <laughs> and, you know, hope we can chat for 20 and I asked for 20 minutes. Okay. And, and I, and I said, I'm, and I don't try to make it a sales call. I just try to say, I'd love to talk to you about what you're doing. I'd be happy to share some of the practices that our clients are doing within the space. I love you it. Know? That's it. I love that approach. That's a, I'm making notes myself. I'm, I'm rethinking some of the ways I use LinkedIn. So once you do get a, a call or a meeting set up with a potential, what are some of the things that you do to, to build rapport and trust? Now you may have to think about this because you've been doing this long enough. You may just do a lot of things just uh, instinctively. But if you if you kind of think through it, what are some of the things that you do to build rapport and trust? Well, I often lead with more questions. You know, they, they say, what is it, the best 
salespeople talk 15% of the time right? and listen, listen the rest. So I, I try to ask as many probing questions as I can in, in the process. And if you go through any formal sales training methodologies that, have, that are out there, and I've done a few, they'll teach you those practices of how to ask discovery questions and questions that lead to greater insights versus, you know, no or yes type answers, for example. You can ask a line of question around their current state, but if you ask a line of question around the future state, or you can ask a line of questions around the benefit of the thing that you might be selling or offering, those are three different ways to ask essentially the same thing, but each one is more compelling than the other in that process, depending upon how you ask the question. So Hmm. asking lots of questions is a great way to build trust. And it also just to the nature of the question demonstrates your knowledge within the space of your expertise. Because if you're asking questions they haven't gotten before or questions in a way they haven't been couched before, you're going to appear smarter than probably the last person they talked to. Right. Right. In that regard. And so, yeah. So, so, so that's one of the ways that I, I think builds trust by building your knowledge within the process. And I think allowing, I think allowing them to talk about what's important to them is another way you build trust because it demonstrates that you aren't just there to sell them the thing that you want to sell. We're here to solve their, their problem. And mm-hmm. as ind- individuals that focus on brand, and ha- we're not dependent upon selling them, say, SEO, right. like an SEO company, like an SEO company would be. Or we're not a web shop that has to rebuild their website. So if I don't sell you fixing your website, you know, I don't have business from you. Or an ad agency who wants to sell advertising and can't stay in business without collecting media commissions. Sure. Or a, or a PR firm who's going to sell them PR and 85% of their revenue is driven by PR and they might sell a few other channels. But honestly, if they didn't sell you PR, they couldn't stay in business, right? Right. So brand is channel agnostic. Mm-hmm. It, it, I am only focused on the things that drive the brand. And so the levers, the many levers for me to choose from and so I don't have an agenda going in other than how do I help the brand create, transform, or grow and inspire belief? Because that is what we try to do is to help their, that company position in such a way that inspires belief by their stakeholders and their employees, internal, external, board, you name it, investors, community, buyers, audience, whatnot. And so I think the more agnostic you can be in your approach to the process, regardless of what your keeps you in business to a, to a degree, the better you're going to come off as a true advisor in that process. Mm-hmm. And you can offer them things that don't even relate to your business. They may have problems in, the, in their responses that, that you're like, oh, I know a CPA or I know a lawyer that can help you with that or I know a bank. You know, we were working with a $40 million second generation family business that was taken over by that second generation. And they had some big aspirational goals, and one of which re- required new business loans. 
And we introduced them to a banker and did a $10 million, they did a $10 million line of credit transaction for them. So that's a way you build trust, just by, by getting outside of your own box and helping them with their initiatives in that process, whatever they might be. And that ties in with, which brings us back to why you uh, are a member of NBDA, to broaden your network, to meet more people, to give you additional you know, sort of tools in your tool chest, not only the brand extract tools, but the tools from other professionals, right? And, but you wouldn't know about those tools if you didn't go meet bankers and, and keep in touch with bankers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why you can't have too many friends. <laughs> sure. I, w- I want to be able to refer, you know, a CFO. I want to be able to refer an IT person. I want to be able to refer a supply chain logistics person or a corporate trainer or, you know, a, a coach, you know, the, an executive coach. It's just, it's just, you know, and I want to refer people that I trust, that I know that I like, because I think those are the three key ingredients to any, any relationship um, in that organization, because you can be brilliant, but if they don't like you, they right. like you. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, as we're as we're kind of headed down the the home stretch here of this interview, what would you say to somebody who is interested in a business development position? Either they're you know you're right out of school, or they are maybe looking to make a transition from more of a technical role to to doing business development. What advice might you give them as far as? if they're considering uh, a BD position? Uh, one, uh, join MBDA. <laughs> You're going to learn a lot. Uh, but two, uh, honestly, surround yourself by other professionals. And that's why I say that. Because you can learn from the experts that have been doing a very long time. Find yourself a good mentor. Okay. Respect and admire in that process. And this is an organization where you could do that kind of thing and meet somebody in that process. But, you know, two, definitely continue your education. Always get certifications, go take, you know, sales training courses, whatever it might be, read books, listen to podcasts like this, you know, get on YouTube, whatever it might be. There's endless you know, amounts of information out there, books, you know, subscribe, but you, you should never stop developing your craft. And I think that's important to remember, um, in this, in this, in this role. And maybe the last piece of advice is remember that the only thing you have in life that can't be taken away from you is your integrity. Oh, great they can take your house, they can take your right. kids, <laughs> they can take your car, you know, they can right. take your money, they can, ta- they, uh, they can take your life. Um, but you, I believe fundamentally that the only thing we have in life that is truly ours is our integrity. Yeah, our integrity. And how we, expre- our... And, and how we express that, right? And yeah. how we express that. Our love, our gratitude, our humanity, these are the things that matter the most if you're going to be in this role. You have to be compassionate. You have to understand where the client is coming from. They might have had the worst day on the planet the day you called them or the day you showed up in their office or the day you delivered your product. You don't know what they're going through. Mm -hmm. 
No, take that's... a pause, take, take a moment and realize you're the speck in their world. But if you make their world a little bit better that day, you've probably made a friend for life and you don't know what day that day is going to be. Sure. Sure. Excellent advice. Well, I have two more questions for you. So one is a curveball question that I promised you. And that is what, if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25 year old self, what advice might you give? One, you don't know as much as you think you know. <laughs> I, I think there is a reason humanity survives. It's because as young individuals, we have no fear, <laughs> right? We step out of the cave, whether the tiger's there or not. It's built into right. the DNA. <laughs> right. You know, so, but I do think that you. Uh, I'll take a pause here and I'll, I'll credit somebody else for this statement. So Harry Beckwith wrote a book called Selling the Invisible. And, he, and in it, he says, all experts are wrong 17.5% of the time. Okay. <laughs> and I just thought that was a remarkable statement that reminded me, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you think you know at your job or your profession, you could be the ultimate expert and you're still going to be wrong some percentage of the time. So... I think most individuals that are young, in, in my case, my very young self, really probably thought they were better than they were. But that's what kept me going. That's what you pushed me. That's what made my drive a big part of the process, right? Was a, a you know, but you need to learn to maybe sometimes keep that ego in check. <laughs> gotcha. In so I think yeah. the advice it sounds like you would give is, is, is maintain at least some humility as you're starting out in your career. A little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's no matter great. how good you might, no matter how good you think you might be, but that's the thing that just sort of, you know, constantly caused me to buck the system and drive and push and push and never set up. Well, no, was I always said I could do better. Right. And I'm measuring that against myself too. And sure. I always, was never satisfied with the thing I was delivering and I always wanted to make it better and better and better. And no, that's, in that process. that's great. Well, as we wrap up here, my last question is just how can people uh, reach out to you? Do you accept LinkedIn recommendations? Uh, what's the best way for them to, uh, for people to reach out? Yeah, I, I do accept LinkedIn recommendations, uh, profiles all there. You can read that whatever you want. Um, but also through my website, brandextract.com, you can reach me through through that. There's you know personal profile up there in bio, and you can directly click on that, and or just go through the contact form of the organization, the firm. So always happy to share advice with anybody that's listening. Talk, love to talk branding, marketing, you know, and I fundamentally believe you know you have to give before you get. Um, yeah, that is a lesson that I learned from others within you know the the BD professional world that I was taught growing up. Um, sure. So I will, I will always give advice to anybody and do my best to help them out because literally I have seen a, a conversation that I had nine or 10 years ago, come back nine or 10 years later. That is awesome. Um, so they'll call you out of the blue saying, Hey, you may not remember me, but we talked and now I have a chance to hire you or refer you or, you know, I've been promoted to CMO or CEO or whatever it might be. 
I have had that happen countless times. And I think if you, if you hold that dear, near and dear to your heart, you will be successful as a BD person. That is, is awesome. So that's Jonathan Fisher, uh, founder of co-founder of brand extract right here in Houston. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It was really uh, a lot of fun. It is my pleasure and, and truly great organization. And I, and I mean that because I've been a member for many years and, and met tremendous people there and learned quite a bit just by being around those that are not only on the board, but the speakers and, and those that have attended. So thank you very, very much. Yeah, my uh, my pleasure. Have a, have a great day. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at podcast.nbda.co. And you can find out more about being a member of the National Business Development Association at nbda.co. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.